Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Then they brought the little children to him that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Then Jesus, looking at him, left him and said, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. With God, all things are possible. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but with God, for with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. What do you think your worst nightmare is? Like, not actually, like, the darkest dream you've ever had. I'm talking really about the thing that you think you fear the most. Like, what's the worst thing that you think could possibly happen to you? I assume for most of us, it'd be connected to some form of loss, right? It'd be the loss, maybe, of our health. For some, maybe the loss of a career or a reputation, the loss of family. Or maybe for some, it would feel like the worst thing that could happen for me is that I would die alone, that that's how my life would come to an end. Others would say, well, maybe it would be some form of suffering or that maybe even I fail on some grand stage with other people being able to watch and see from afar. Or maybe for some, they would say that the worst thing that could happen to me is that I could live out my life and never have my dreams be realized, to never have my dreams be achieved. 
But what if the worst thing that could possibly happen to you is not necessarily connected to a loss? What if the worst thing that could happen to any one of us might possibly be connected to an achievement or to success? Think about that. Rather than the worst thing possibly that could happen to us being connected to something we'd lose, what if the worst thing for us could quite possibly be connected to something we'd achieve, to some form of success that we would attain to? What if reaching an achievement, reaching and experiencing your dreams was the worst thing for you? What if our success is quite possibly the most dangerous thing for us, making it the worst thing that could possibly happen for us? Now think about this with me. How in the world could success be a dangerous thing for us? Well, I think that this passage actually begins to bring that to the surface and challenge us with the thought. We're left in attention as we just read through these three little vignettes, these three stories of Jesus' interaction with people. We're left in attention wondering, is it a dangerous thing for us to experience success? Because success, I do think, can be dangerous because we can begin to define our, our sense of self and our value based on our successes, which leaves success potentially so very dangerous because then it can blind you to your deep need for the grace of God to cover your failures and shortcomings and sin. Because instead, what we're left viewing ourselves as is just the successful, just the rich, just the powerful just the ones who have achieved what we set out to achieve. You see, the little vignette that Jesus lays out here for us, or the interactions that Jesus has, it, it leaves us thinking that Jesus is more than just revealing the disciples' distorted view of what makes someone worthy of Jesus in the stories we just read. But it also seems to be that Jesus is simultaneously revealing the world's broken view of measuring our own self-worth based upon our personal successes. That it's not just the way we view other people, but even the way we view ourselves. that Jesus seems through these stories to kind of be taking the acts too. And so what we're going to do quickly this morning is we're going to walk back through these three stories. The first is Jesus being approached by these children. And then the second is Jesus being approached by this wealthy, prominent, powerful individual, very different from these children. And then the third portion of what we just read was Jesus then alone, away from those settings, addressing his disciples. And you might have noticed he addressed them in that moment as children. So walk with me through these three stories. The first of these three scenes records these individuals, these parents who bring their children to Jesus. Now, historians give us some insight into this era, what it would look like to try to raise children during this time, and it tells us that infant mortality, the rate was extremely high. One historian that I read, he gave an estimate that six out of every 10 children in this era of history wouldn't even make it to 16 years old. Because of illnesses and, and their lack of understanding of what to do and how to treat those illnesses, and because of people's poverty, it, it compounded those issues with little access that they would have to the kind of proper nutrition and even medical aid that they would need during this era. Think of that, six in ten children not making it to 16. And so what we picture then is, is these poor peasant mothers breaking through the crowds that had gathered to hear from Jesus, to, to hear the teacher and the healer, and they're bringing their children to Jesus with desperation on their faces, looking for Jesus to touch and to bless their children. 
The story is also recorded in Luke's gospel, and where it's recorded there, there's a linguistic hint that's given to us about something we should be picturing, where the, the term that's used is a masculine form of a word when it talks about how they brought their children to Jesus. It's not just mamas, but it's dads too, who are there to brave the crowds and push their, their wives and their children forward. This is a bit of commotion that's taking place, and there's desperation in this moment. But then there's an abrupt stop a halting of that moment. The urgency of these parents who long to have their children touched and prayed for and blessed by Jesus, there's now someone, someone's, plural, standing in between them and Jesus saying, not today. The teacher's time is too valuable for an unimportant task like just children, the unimportant task of embracing and caring for these children. And in verse 14, our attention then shifts towards Jesus, where it says that he was greatly displeased with the disciples' decision to push these children away. Literally, he, he experienced, it's, it's a Greek word that expresses a deep sense of grief over it. That Jesus felt this moment deeply, seeing, seeing these parents who were so desperate and so driven to get them to Jesus, their children to Jesus, and then the disciples running interference it can be translated that he was deeply afflicted. He was hurt by their decision to run interference. And the crowd, everyone around, would have quickly recognized Jesus' indignation over the decision to push these children away. And then Jesus will silence the disciples, uh, th their decision to stand up in objection by leaning down to scoop up these children into his own arms. And what we picture is Jesus then embracing them and blessing them. We picture parents who, who are driven to get their healthy and their sick children to Jesus, and now Jesus touching them and praying for them, healing for them. We even, if these children are sitting in the embrace of Jesus, we picture Jesus smiling and joking with them. There's a, qu a few quick things as we, as we picture that scene that, that instantly we have start to settle into our minds. And the first is the fact that if, if these children are willing to be embraced by Jesus, then maybe some of our imagery that we have in our own minds of Jesus needs to be challenged, where if in our own minds we're, we're picturing the zombie-like character as the glazed-over look who's constantly looking through people and off into nothing, where he's this somber, stoic individual. If that's how you picture him, then maybe we need to picture him differently, because I don't know how many children are willing to enter the embrace of someone with a facial expression like that. There's something warm about Jesus that we pick up in moments, and this is one of those moments. But this moment also challenges me that I ought to care about children and their well-being and the way that Jesus would pause in his very busy schedule and his very important job and commission that Jesus would still stop and make time for even the least of these, these children who could do nothing for him. Jesus loved them, and this was a part of his kingdom commission. That challenges me that I need to slow down and give attention to my own children, to give affection to my own children. It tells me that we as a church need to slow down and give attention and care to the children that are part of our own church family. You can insert children's ministry plug here that, that this is a good moment just to be reminded of that, that it's an important thing that Jesus did. The other thing this tells me, though, is quite possibly that there's a bigger lesson that my mind needs to be wrapped around that's, that's taking place that plays out in this moment, that Jesus in this moment is doing more than just correcting the accidental mistake of the disciples and they're blocking access of these children to Jesus. 
I believe that because the real issue, I don't think, was their low view of them, of children. I think that their real issue was their view of themselves. Their issue was not necessarily their low view of children. Their issue seemed to be their high view, their superior view, even of themselves. For Lindsay and I, there are moments where we catch ourselves saying to our own kids, because we have three, a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a four-year-old, where we catch ourselves saying to our kids, what are you, helpless? You know, it's when they, they call for you from the back of the house, and they're sitting on the couch yelling for you over and over again, and you come in thinking someone's dying or surely the house is on fire, and, and what they're asking for is, can you hand me the remote? It's them acting so helpless when they're calling for you, and, and when you go to the kitchen and ask what the deal is, they go, I just need some water. And they're standing right next to the drawer with the cups and the sink that they could get the water from. It's our kids acting helpless when it's time to put their shoes on and go, and all of a sudden they seem to have forgotten how to put their shoes on or, or how to brush their teeth in the evenings. And we look at them in moments, and in frustration, you just go, are you helpless? Well, in some ways, and, and, and hopefully we're not the only people who deal with that in moments, but in some ways, they are helpless. Maybe not in all of those areas, like a remote or a glass of water or brushing their teeth or putting their shoes on, but we call them children still and not adults because they are helpless. They are still dependent upon someone else's care and provision for their own survival. That's what a child is. That's how we would define a child. They are in many ways helpless, and this is our connection. Think of that to what Jesus is here saying, that entrance to the kingdom, to being forgiven and accepted by God and made part of his family and kingdom is exclusively available to those who receive him, he said, like a child. And a child is someone who's dependent upon the provision of someone else for their survival. They are helpless. You see, we're not to be childish in our faith and our decision to follow Jesus, but Scripture is very clear that we are to be like a child in the expression of our faith and approach to Jesus. Remember, a child is completely dependent upon another's provision for their own survival. And so we are to come to Jesus as a child then. We're to recognize our own depravity, my own need for a Savior. We admit our dependence on outside resources to enter into the kingdom. Jesus, I don't have what it takes. I don't approach you with credentials. I approach you empty-handed, saying, I need what only you can give me. I need a Savior. I don't come proud and arrogant or self-confident and feeling independent. The opposite is true. I come to him humble and with a lack of confidence and awareness, in fact, of my own need for him, my Savior, my God. We approach him like a child does with arms outstretched towards their parents saying, Father, I need your help. I can't do this alone. I'm helpless, Jesus. But won't you take me anyways? That's how we approach Jesus, to enter the kingdom, childlike faith. And we ought never to graduate from that. Remember in Scripture it says, oh, you've, you've been so foolish. Having begun in the Spirit, you've sought to be made perfect in your own flesh and effort. We ought never to graduate from recognizing our own deep need as children who need the provision of someone else for our survival. That's what we need, is we need Jesus, our substitute and sacrifice, to go to a cross for us. And so when we approach him in faith in the first instant, to say, Jesus, I need a Savior, that's how we approach him. But may we never graduate from that stance, 
that heart position and posture. We should never grow out of a state of dependence upon his grace for our salvation, for our sanctification, for our everyday life in connection with him. Listen, I was not accepted as a child of God because of my own merits or morals. It's, it's the opposite of that. I was accepted by him in spite of my lack of moral standing or uprightness. And I did not become a follower of Jesus so that I could then strive to impress him with my merits or my morals. The gospel tells me the opposite of that. I don't now have to prove myself to stay a member of the home and a part of his kingdom and adopted into his family. No, I stay dependent upon his grace and his love and his provision for me outside of myself providing for me what I could not provide for myself. The disciples in the moment seem to think that Jesus is just too busy. He's busy with us adults with those of us who can take care of ourselves, provide for ourselves, who can stand as his peers, who maybe even can impress him. No, we are here together with Jesus because we're different than you who can offer nothing to him. What they failed to see was that the thing that would keep them from Jesus' kingdom was what that revealed about their hearts. What would keep them from his kingdom was their opinions of themselves. You see, I don't think the issue is just their low view of children so much as it was the real issue was in regard to their high view of themselves. In the book of James, James writes and says that he gives grace generously. And then James continues and he says, as the scriptures say, God opposes the the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you want to enter God's kingdom, scripture is clear not just that those who have nothing to offer can belong, It's clear that only those who can see and are willing to admit that they have nothing can belong. That that is entrance into the kingdom. Remember, we began today with the question, what if the worst thing that could possibly happen to you is not necessarily some loss that you suffer, but what if it's some some success that you achieve? Because reaching sometimes those high lofty dreams and goals that we have sometimes can be so detrimental to us because our success becomes damaging to us. The worst thing that could possibly happen to us in moments because we can begin to view ourselves as superior. We can view ourselves superior because of that success. We can view ourselves separate from those who come to Jesus empty-handed because look at what I can offer to Jesus. You'll see in the next story that we hit next weekend, that'll be the issue with the disciples where they're still arguing about who's earned the position, the highest honor amongst the followers of Jesus. They're still jockeying for position and wanting to list credentials. But here there's a contrast where these simple, humble children are brought before Jesus who can do nothing for him but are embraced by him. You see, we can end up like the disciples whose real issue is not necessarily their low view of others, but really their high view of themselves. We can fail to see ourselves as children, those who are dependent upon another's provision for their survival. But there's a second danger. The first is that we can view ourselves as superior because of our success. The second is that we can lose ourselves in that success, that we can lose ourselves in our success. This is how it can be so dangerous for us. Success and wealth can be a dangerous thing for us. In fact, we dig into that second story now, where there's this prominent individual who approaches Jesus that the other gospels, they give us these additional details that this guy is rich. 
that he's young, and that he's a person in authority, a ruler. You probably know we, we address him by a title. We think of him now and talk about him via the title of the rich young ruler. That's what we call this guy who approaches Jesus in the moment. He's the guy who in scripture seems to be so unique of all the people who approach Jesus because he's the only person who seemed to possess everything the world tells you you need. And yet he approaches Jesus and does what? He crumbles before him and says, what else do I need? He's a person who's wealthy. He's, he's a person who's young. We assume good looking. We, we find a person here who's respected by other people. He's a ruler. He has authority. But he comes to Jesus being willing to freely admit that none of that was enough, that he was still lacking something, that he needed more, that he lived in attention of recognizing that. And so he comes and says, what else do I need? What is it that I lack? Jesus didn't go chasing this guy down, trying to convince him that there's there's some internal emptiness and void that exists inside of you with the guy saying, that's not true, I'm good. Jesus isn't chasing after him, trying to tell him there's something still you're missing, and the guy's waving him off. No, the guy is feeling it, and it's driving him so much so that he humbly goes to Jesus publicly and falls before his feet, saying, good teacher, what else must I do? He's freely admitting his own emptiness and inability to remedy that emptiness that exists there. You see, there's a deep longing in every human heart for what no human can create or conjure up or cure. There's a longing for what God alone can give to us. But the bridge to get there is a pathway called humility. We must be willing and able to see ourselves as simply a child in need of another's providing for us. And those who are most successful in our society and culture, in our world, all throughout history, are the ones that find that the most offensive. That they have to lay down every credential, every success, everything that gives them their notoriety and their identity. They have to lay it all down in order to humbly approach Jesus. Please hear me, your choice to follow Jesus was never intended to simply be viewed as some form of fire insurance. Following Jesus is about experiencing eternal life, life as God intended it to be, beginning today here on planet Earth. Life abundant is what Jesus called it. You see, as a follower of Jesus, you have a quality of life that the world doesn't have and that the world can't find anywhere else because your identity is not shaped or controlled by external, ever-changing things. It's not defined or controlled by your wealth. And it's up and down with the stock market. It's not, it's not controlled by or shaped by your job or your external status or, or people's respect of you or the personal power that you feel that you hold. Think back with me to the rich young ruler who comes and kneels before Jesus. Wealth, his wealth. Wealth was a controversial topic as much in the first century as it is in our own modern setting. Wealth is super controversial to talk about. And, and I say that because... Because we think the same way that the ancient world did. We live in the same kind of mentality and tension where there are many people, as you read ancient writings, who looked and viewed wealth as a sign of God's favor on someone's life. And many of us today still live in that tension, and some of us are tempted to think that way, where we can view God's favor as 
being uh, described or shown or displayed through someone having wealth and success in their life. This is why we often call people who are wealthy and successful, we refer to them as blessed. We think of Job's friends who come to Job and say, because you lost all of your wealth and success and influence and power, well, then clearly you must have done something to disrupt God's pleasure on your life because your success, your wealth was was an expression of, of God's favor resting upon you. You see, some think of wealth that way. Others view it, and not just in ancient times, but even still today, they view wealth as an evidence of corruption. On the far other side of the spectrum, spectrum, not just a sign of God's favor and blessing, but instead they would look at wealthy people and they would view it as evidence of their personal corruption. Some today still think this way, that wealth is proof of a person's unrighteousness and exploitation of other people, even their selfishness and holding back their resources from others. And the Bible's clear in saying that for some, hear me again, for some who are rich, they have acquired their riches through immoral means, through exploitation and oppression, through defrauding others and and closing their hearts off to the needs that are around them. And the Bible warns people who have resources not to do that. Even today, we can be guilty as a society of throwing stones at the rich and saying what we would do if we had their kinds of resources, and and blaming them and saying that they're selfish and twisted people, and claiming that they've gained their power or their wealth through some sort of unethical means. It's easy for us to, to throw darts at people like that. And although that might be true for some, it's not true for all. We like simple. Wealth is either an expression of God's favor and blessing, or wealth is a corruption of a human who's taking advantage of the disadvantage. We like clean and simple, one of the two camps. Jesus did not adhere to either of those overly simplistic views of wealth. Scriptures don't teach either of those two. Neither of the culture's strong opinions were embraced by Jesus. Don't miss this. Jesus demonstrated equal concern in regard to wealth about how you'd require it, he taught about not plundering the property of those who are widows or those who have, who have gone through catastrophe, not exploiting those opportunities. He also talked about what you did with it. He taught that we should be generous, generous and not ignore needs around us. But he also was equally concerned about what wealth could do to a person, what wealth could do to a wealthy person. And that's what I think is all of a sudden given in this moment is an example. That's what he's addressing in this moment, is what wealth and success can do to those who hold on to it too tightly. You see, we we could have success and power and wealth be a dangerous thing for us because we can view ourselves either as superior because of that wealth as we, as we compare ourselves to other people, but also we can lose ourselves in our own success. And that's what we're seeing in this story. You've probably heard people say that money is the root of all evil. But what the scriptures actually say is that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That yes, it's true that there are so many problems in our world that come out of the root system of those problems are the love that people have for wealth and success. But here's a question we need to address. Is Jesus here? Here's our question. Is he here commanding that we all go and sell everything we have and give the proceeds away to other people? You see, there's a danger that we start to realize even as we read this story. The danger is that if we isolate just little moments in Scripture, 
like these little comments, these letters in red, if we isolate them from what the rest of the Bible teaches or even what Jesus himself says later or the epistles are written to the church, if we isolate this statement from everything else, then we're left feeling as though Jesus has commanded everyone who would follow him to sell everything they have, give everything away, and live in poverty. But that's not what Scripture tells or teaches us. In fact, in the, in the epistles, it tells the New Testament church that what we're to do is rather than giving everything away, it doesn't command that. It instead encourages and commands people to be generous and to be humble with the resources that they've been entrusted. The Scriptures and even Jesus himself would teach us that we're stewards. That's what Scripture teaches us, that we're stewards, not owners of the resources that we possess, including our money. You see, if I'm an owner of my money, then I can spend it however I see fit. But if I'm a steward entrusted with someone else's money, then I will use it however its true owner instructs me to use it. And God instructs me in Scripture to be wise with what He's entrusted to me as resources, to be kingdom-minded with those resources, rather than trying to build my own empire, to think of building his kingdom with those things. And he's instructed me to be generous with what he has entrusted to me as a steward, not as an owner. And I'm thankful for so many of you that this is how you view what God has entrusted to you. You view yourselves as stewards. I'm thankful that for us as a church that we can view the resources then that you entrust, that we entrust together collectively to the mission of Jesus in our local community and abroad, that we can view ourselves as stewards. And like I told you last week, that looked like for us this last calendar year, over $35,000 going to support missions and outreach outside of our church. It looked like nearly $10,000 landing by the end of the year as a budget line for benevolence, supporting those in our own church and those around us and even some people here at this school, trying to help them through this difficult season that, that we have wanted to be a reflection of your generosity as you choose to follow Jesus and entrust him, give back to him the resources he's entrusted to you. We want to do that together collectively as a church. But for the rich young ruler, it looks so different. We seem to get a, a glimpse in this moment of the powerful way, that the, the powerful impact of his riches and his success it had on him when he claims that he's the better of, of uh, or the best of all the rest of men when he claims really even to be a perfect man, where Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom, then you know what the law says, obey the law. And he says, I have perfectly done these things from my youth. The man speaks more from, more from a place of pride than truth in that moment. And in that moment, he calls Jesus, oh, good teacher. We get a glimpse of really his low view of Jesus' identity and his high view of himself. And Jesus addresses and corrects both of those things with his question of why do you call me good when there's only one good and it's God? He challenges the, the man's view of Jesus. Unless you're willing to say that I'm God, don't come here just patronizing me with a, a thought that I'm good. But he also is correcting the man's view of himself. The, the success that was clouding his view of himself. Jesus is soft-selling what he's about to hit him really hard with. He says that you know that there's none good or righteous but God. And then with the next breath, Jesus appeals to him. So release what leaves you blinded to your own unrighteousness and your need for God. He says, give your wealth away. 
He tells this specific man, divorce yourself from your identity as successful because you refuse to humble yourself as long as you see yourself as better than others. And as long as you see yourself is without a need for outside provision of God's grace and mercy for you. You see, in ancient cultures, as well as in our modern 21st century culture, we're guilty of using success and wealth and money as a scorecard. Success is not a a display of heaven's report card, a sign of heaven's approval on someone's life, nor is success meant to be a cultural scorecard that we use to compare ourselves to other people as grading higher. Please hear the word of warning that I think that this passage is meant to give us. That's that success can cloud our view and inhibit us from seeing the deepest and truest thing about me, and that's my utter depravity and need for God. When we see that clearly, we're all of a sudden freed from the lifelong trap that exists in our culture of using our wealth. The trap is that we use our wealth, our influence, our power, our success as a scorecard rather than as a resource. You see, on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would show up and teach, and he would say, blessed are the the poor, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the blessed ones? Who are the insiders? Who does the kingdom belong to? Well, not the rich in virtue, not the rich in resources, not even the rich in knowledge, not the successful, the renowned, the admired. He said, the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit. My friend, if you came in here today disappointed in yourself, discouraged by your lack of resources or or your lack of success, If you're weary because you see all of your own inadequacies and it disappoints you and overwhelms you, if you strolled in today feeling broken, broken, feeling like a child who needs rescue, then hear me say, congratulations, because the kingdom belongs to you. Congratulations, because the kingdom is only entered through a pathway that's marked by humility, The kingdom of God, it belongs to those who recognize their own depravity and deep need for God, and success has a way of clouding that view. Because for some, they might stroll in here as the king of the world with their identity wrapped up in their success and their perspective so jaded by self-deception that is its byproduct, the byproduct of success. You and I are invited, though, in this moment to humble ourselves and to find our significance and security in Jesus alone. We're invited to find our significance and security in Jesus alone. If your identity and security is rooted in anything other than Jesus, then beware of the pride that can blind you from your deep need for a Savior. In fact, this is what Jesus says. This is how he puts it. He says, you need to understand that it would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for you to enter the kingdom, Is that if that's how you see yourself. And if you've been here, you know I love some good cultural background or history or something that you can find that that brings some depth of life or meaning to an illustration like this where where there's something you can dig into and find, and, and I don't think there's anything for this. I think Jesus' statement was meant to be as absurd as it sounds. Some say, well, maybe it's addressing the walls around the city of Jerusalem, and some of the gates were low setting, and they're yet to find one that was marked as the eye of a needle. 
But a low-lying gate, they speculate, that you had a, a camel that was packed high, and, and as you got to that gate, you'd have to unpack, unload the packs off the camel, and then force the camel to bend down low, and then drag it through the gate. It would be an irritation, it would be a process, but it was possible to get the camel through the eye of a needle. But there's no archaeological or historical resource or inf- of information that I found anywhere that would validate that kind of a take on this. Others say that the Hebrew word, or I'm sorry, the Greek word that's used here of a camel passing through the eye of a needle, that the word camel is very close. It's written almost the same as twine, the word for twine. That it's as difficult as twine passing through the eye of a needle. And if you've ever tried to thread a needle, you know it is difficult and it is an irritation and it takes some patience, but it's possible. And so maybe that's what Jesus is saying, that it's not impossible, it's just a frustration. It's not impossible, it's just going to take some time. But you could enter the kingdom. But again, neither of those things are accurate excuses or reframes of what Jesus is actually saying here. And if you ask me, look at the disciples' response to what he says, and I think it was just as ridiculous and absurd as we think it is. Because as they respond, they say, well, then who in the world is going to make it in? Who in the world will ever make this cut? They're looking at someone who who is a a popular figurehead, who is our modern celebrity, someone who's admired the rich, the young, the ruler, the one with power. And they're saying, if that man hasn't earned his way in, then how will any of us? With man, these things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You see, they were astonished, verse 26 says, greatly astonished, saying amongst themselves, who then can be saved? Jesus clearly did not adhere to the presumption that prosperity and success is some sort of a proof of divine favor. Jesus taught in the parable of the sower that prosperity and success can be dangerous in that they can be deceptive and blind us from our need for a savior. Remember back in Mark 4, the parable of the sower, here's what Jesus said. He says, now these are the ones among the thorns. They're the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. And the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke out the good news of the word of Jesus and it becomes unfruitful. Please don't miss this. The passage does not teach us here that Jesus is excluding the rich on account of their wealth itself. The issue is not that they had riches. The issue is that this man's riches really had him. The issue is not that he had riches. It was that his riches held him captive. He had lost himself in his success. His identity was tethered to it. His significance and security was found inside of it. He could not release his hold on his wealth because he feared what would be left of himself without it. That is the deception and the danger of success and of riches. How could it be dangerous for us to experience wealth and success? Well, we can view ourselves as superior than others because of our success, but we also can lose ourselves inside of it. We lose our sense of self that I don't exist I can't imagine my life without this. That man sat at the knees, on his knees, in front of Jesus, and as Jesus says, well, then go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then follow me, that man could not imagine what it would be like to to be him without his wealth being present. He couldn't imagine being him without his influence and prominence mattering to other people. 
He couldn't imagine following Jesus with leaving that prior identity that gave him significance and security, and so the man instead left sorrowful. That's what it says in verse 22. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great wealth. Success has a way of setting a trap for us, and this man remains stuck inside the clutches of his success at the expense of his soul. Because his identity was so wrapped up in his success, he was blind to his need for a savior. The truth is he needed saving from that success, didn't he? From the trap that it had set for him. For him to leave his wealth would be to lose his sense of self. Because he was the rich young ruler. His identity was wrapped up in that identity, in that wealth and success. That's why he couldn't leave his riches. It's because his money had become more than just money. It was his security and significance. And if he let that go, what would remain there of himself? You see, there's a final section very, very quickly of Jesus teaching here. And of our question of like, well, how how could success or wealth be a dangerous thing for us? Well, first, it it leaves us feeling sometimes superior to others. And, and also, we find ourselves sometimes lost inside of it, where we lose our identity and don't feel like we can exist without it. But the other danger, the third thing, is that we can find ourselves outside of the kingdom because our identity is found in that success rather than in sonship. It's that we can find ourselves outside the kingdom because success defines us rather than sonship does. This is something that theologians refer to as a Mark and Sandwich, this passage is. It's something we've discussed in previous weeks as we've walked through Mark's gospel. It's a nerdy term, but picture a sandwich, and so it becomes less nerdy. But a sandwich has a piece of bread, and then it has the meat in the middle, and then a piece of bread on the bottom. You don't call that that sandwich a bread sandwich. You call it whatever the meat is because that's where the flavor and the power comes from. It's funny, our youngest, she's four, Declan, she doesn't like grilled cheese, but she likes bread cheese bread. So maybe she's the one exception who does call it a bread cheese bread sandwich. The rest of us call it a grilled cheese because the bread is just the placeholder for the goodness inside. The Mark and Sandwich are stories that are sandwiched together where the top and the bottom layer have a similarity and a connection, that, but that their, their stories are best understood by the flavor inside. Think of these three vignettes, these three little stories that we just read, the welcoming of children who come to Jesus, the sorrow of the successful departing from Jesus because he couldn't leave his success to follow Jesus, but then Jesus' invitation to children to come to him. Verse 24, he looks at his disciples and addresses them as children. So why did Mark place these stories together? Why did he record them the way that he did? Why highlight Jesus referring to his disciples as helpless children? Because these three stories clearly teach us that entrance into God's kingdom, acceptance by our King Jesus is not earned. It's accepted like a child who helplessly calls to their parents, who express their dependence upon another's provision for their survival. That's why these stories are recorded like this. Because we look the direction of the rich young ruler of Jesus. Think of it. That's who the story, the story of the rich young ruler, leaves us thinking of. Is the one, the rich young ruler, Jesus. 
who would provide just that for us. He would provide a way for us to receive sonship, not for us to earn our place in the kingdom. Jesus would leave the comforts and safety of his home, the rich, the young, the ruler, the son of the living God, the heir to his throne. He'd lay aside his rights and privileges. He'd lay down even his own life for us. In verse 21, as this interaction is happening between Jesus and this, this other rich young ruler, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. I'd suggest he looked at him and loved him because Jesus was moved with compassion for him in that moment, but also because Jesus saw in that man a comrade. Because in his own heart, Jesus recognized how costly it would be to be willing to leave the identity and the wealth and the power and the authority and all that was involved in his prior identity He knew what it would cost this man. He looked at him and loved him because he saw in him something of himself. A crossroads. It's a moment that I think you find echoing and playing out in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus has collapsed and says, Father, is there any other way? And Jesus officially lays down the final pieces of his identity to take on my identity and yours. As the broken as the poor, as the empty-handed, he'd be filled with my sin. He'd be the recipient of that judgment that I deserve so that then he could share with me the right to his throne, so that I could be adopted as a child and an heir to the throne, so that I could become the father of the king, so that I could have access to, to all that Jesus had access to in the kingdom. Jesus knew firsthand what it was like to give up and give away, to leave all that he had. And he looked at him and loved him because he knew firsthand what it was like to feel that it costs you even a sense of self because Jesus will soon cry out to his father. But what he laid down as the rich young heir to heaven's throne was his right to that throne. One author masterfully said, he said, what money was for him the Father was for Jesus. It was the center of his identity, and it's what he gave up. Jesus instead took our sin and brokenness, depravity and my wretchedness, so that we could become the co-heirs and eternal sons of the ruler of heaven and earth. By Christ laying down all that made him the rich young ruler, the prince of heaven, He makes a way for us to forever share that title and position with him. Are you seeing in these stories the necessity of releasing our hold on every earthly thing so that we can find our identity, our security, and significance, our salvation in Jesus alone? Because that is the gospel, and that is the message of these stories. And your Bible says that the message of the gospel is an offense to some. And for some who would define themselves as successful, I would argue it is an offense to them. Because they've worked so hard to earn that identity. They've worked so hard to to acquire what they have, to, to reach up the ladder and be recognized as prominent and mattering. And Jesus is saying, would you lay all of that down and approach me like a child saying, I have nothing in my hands of any value. 
I have nothing in my hands that I want to be identified with. Jesus, I only want and need you. You see, the danger is that our success can be the thing that grips us so tightly that we find ourselves outside the kingdom because our, dri- our drive for success has left us uh, failing to ever become sons. And the way we become sons is by choosing to see ourselves as children who go empty-handed humbly to a loving father, to a loving mediator, the rich young ruler, Jesus, who laid everything he had down to make a way for me to be a recipient of everything that his kingdom will be. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.